Good morning, Summit Church, at all of our various campuses, wherever you're watching this from. I would like for you, if you would, this morning to stand up on your feet because this is the kind of passage that we are, really needs to be read or experienced with. Uh, I just think it's better on your feet. So if you would, let me read to you Exodus 33 and 34 or parts of those chapters um, as we begin here this morning. Exodus 33, 18. And so Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face and live. You shall see the trail of my glory, but my face shall not be seen. Chapter 34 is the story of that encounter. Chapter 34, verse 1. And so the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the mountain to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Look at this picture, if you would. Moses standing there in this mountain waiting with the tablets of the Ten Commandments in his hand. Verse 5, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." And God said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any other nation. And all the people among you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest they become a snare in your midst, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. We all together said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. This passage is like a little microcosm of the entire Bible. All the elements of what it really means to know God are in this passage. We're going to discuss three of these elements that will consolidate the entire series that we have been through here in the book of Exodus and bring it all to a good close because this summarizes the whole thing. There are three things, these three things that make Christianity real and potent. And these are the things that I will try to show you that most Christians are missing from their lives, especially here in the South. In the South, we have a pasteurized and neutered version of cultural Christianity that is just not real. And most people from the outside can see right through it. They can see that our Christianity is basically, for most of us, functions 
like a, a moral code that keeps us behaving and that, uh, that, that functions mostly like a fairy tale that keeps us warm at night. Uh, now listen, I am a southerner. Um, I love the South. I know the South is not a direction, it's a way of life. I am one of us. But I can see that a lot of times, I can see why a lot of times atheists who live here think that religion is just made up. I can see that because of these things I'm going to talk about. These three things make the difference in Christianity that is convincing and real. And Christianity that is just sterile religiosity. That is form and function with no real substance. These are the things that make Christianity real. Let me also add this. These are the things that make Christianity thrilling to be a part of. For some of you, you are missing these three things, and that's what makes your Christianity such a drudgery. I will guarantee you, if these three things that we're going to see today in this passage are not present in your walk with Christ, Christianity is not exciting to you. And I will bet that you have a very bland and lukewarm commitment to Christ that is full of compromise and inconsistency, and that just feels like a drag to you. These, again, summarize our whole series and a great way for us to end this. So if you have a pen and a piece of paper, uh, you might want to jot these down as we go through them. Here is element number one that, that you should have seen, or the least I saw in this passage, presence. It's the name of the whole series. Presence. If you recall, when we studied chapter 33 a few weeks ago, it showed you that God had offered to send Israel up into the land that he promised. He just said, I'm not going to go with you. They had ticked him off so badly in chapter 32 that God had said to them, you know what, I'm going to keep my promises. I'll give you this land. I'll vanquish all of your enemies. I'll bless your crops. I'll prosper you. I'll take care of you. But I just can't go with you because you probably tick me off again and I'll probably wipe you out. Moses' response is, God, if your presence is not going to go with us, we don't want to go. So Moses again prays here, chapter 34, verse 9, Lord, our God, please let the Lord go in the middle of us and take us for your inheritance. Do you see those two phrases? They are so powerful. Go in the midst of us. Be inside of us. Take us for your inheritance. We want you to be in us. We want you to possess us. This is an intimate connection. The point of all that God has done for them. And the point of all that Jesus has done for you is so that he could fill you with his presence. Look at how Paul said this in the New Testament. This is so good. I've never seen this really before. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Look at this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us when he died on the cross. Why? So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The purpose of all that Jesus did was so that you could possess the spirit of God inside of you. Let me say that again. The purpose of all the agonies of the cross and all that God has done was so that you could possess the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's the point. So here's my first question as we end this series. Is the presence of God a reality in your life? Is the presence of God a reality, not a theory, but is it a reality in your life? 
John chapter 16, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples who are sad because he has told them that he is leaving, which is understandable. I mean, how would you feel if you'd had Jesus Christ himself walking around with you for three years? And then now he tells you he's going to leave for the rest of your life. And so Jesus says this to them in, in verse 7, chapter 16. He says, I tell you the truth. Did he really need to say that? Like, were they used to him lying to them? There's a reason he says that. Watch this. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. Did you hear that? Here's what Jesus said to him: You are better off with the Holy Spirit in you than you would be with me right beside you. That's why he had to tell me he wasn't lying. Because even though they're used to him being the Son of God, the Son of God not really making lying a habit of his, he knows this is so unbelievable and so staggering of a statement that he's got to say, I know that you know I'm God, but I still got to tell you I'm not lying here. Because you're totally going to think I'm making this up. Would you get, listen, would you get out of the droning sermon listening to a guy talk mode for just a minute and think about this? How cool would it have been to have Jesus physically living with you i mean you got a question and you're just like jesus tell me about this he said bam here's the answer jesus i got a headache no problem zap headache gone your dog gets run over and you're like jesus dog's mashed jesus raises him from the dead your cat gets run over and jesus helps you dig the hole to bury it because <laughs> we all know jesus feels like like we do you're throwing a party, and you realize you don't have enough sandwiches, you're not a Cheetos, and Jesus is like, no problem, and he multiplies your Cheetos, so there's 12 bags left over. And you're like, you're being ridiculous. Yes, of course, I know, but Jesus meant something here. So it's a fair question. Are there any dimensions to the presence of God in your life that would make you say, yeah, Jesus was right. The God I have inside me is better and more beneficial than if he were right here beside me this morning. I explained to you that when it comes to the whole concept of the presence of God, there are two extremes, both of which are corrected here in, in, in chapter 34. On the one hand, you've got a lot of very sincere Christians who have no concept at all of the presence of God. By the way, I don't mean hypocrites or people that aren't very sincere. I mean really sincere Christians, seminary-trained Christians, in fact, a lot of times. These Christians treat God as if he were somebody way up in heaven that we'll experience and see one day, but now, basically, he's just left us a book to study about him and some stuff to do while he's on vacation. These people equate growth and godliness with learning more theology and keeping more commands. They relate to God more like a theory than or a philosophy than they do a person. What Moses says here is, no, there's something more. I want to see your glory. I want your presence with me. I want to see your face. Face panim in Hebrew means the place of relationship, the presence. And when you talk to somebody, if you are going to have a conversation with them, you want to see their face. My kids, when they, when they come down, you know, 5.30 on a Saturday morning, and they want to, you know, it's coming, you single people, laugh it up, all right? They come down and they, they want to get in bed and I, I want to ignore, I love my children, but I want to ignore them in that moment. 
There's a little struggle that's going on. I'm trying to hide my face from them because once my face sees them, I've got to acknowledge their presence. And they're trying to do this little game where they get up in my face. You know, they're all crawling around trying to angle to get up in my face because they want to see Daddy's face. See, we're talking about more here than just knowledge or obedience. Think about if you asked me how my relationship with Veronica, my wife, was going, and I'm like, great. I just took a class on Veronicaology, and I learned a ton. Well, that's great. I mean, a little sketchy, but great. But that's not the point of the question you're asking. I mean, do we enjoy spending time together? Are we growing in our love for each other? What's our sexual intimacy like? These are better barometers about where our relationship is than simply our knowledge of one another. Now, you guys realize, know me well enough to know that, of course, I'm not talking, I'm not poo-pooing theology or deep knowledge of God. I mean, do I need to point out to you again that I pursued a Ph.D. in theology? I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you I love knowledge. I am well acquainted with my inner nerd. What I'm saying is that God, what God wants from us is not less than theology. It is much, much more. And that's on one hand. you got those kind of Christians. On the other, you got people who want to be in God's presence, but they think of God's presence as some kind of strange, weird, spine-tingling, hair-raising experience. They think they can drum it up by yelling or dancing or stamping their feet or screaming for it or repeating lyrics over and over and over again that if you do this enough that God's just obliged to come. These people are the kind of people that are always blaming whatever goes wrong in the service on the absence of the Holy Spirit. Microphone goes out and these people are coming forward to anoint the microphone with oil and cast demons out of it. You're like, I'm not really sure that's going to help. I don't know if that's the issue here. These verses show you to those people that God's presence, listen to this, is experienced primarily as a new soul-felt understanding of his name, a revelation to your spirit about the immensity of God. So when the Lord descends in the cloud and stood there with Moses, talk about presence, that's as close as it gets. When he stood there in the cloud with Moses, he does what? He proclaims the name of the Lord. God's presence is an experiential felt sense of his attributes and his character as revealed in his name. I gave you this illustration. If I'm walking along beside of my daughter who is six years old and looking down at her as I hold her hand, I'm overcome with a sense of how cute she is and how much I love her. I pick her up and I spin her around and I hug her and I kiss her all over her face. She knew that I was her daddy before that. But in that moment, she has a real felt sense of it that is different than before. That's what's happening to Moses here. Moses is overcome with awe in the presence of God. First, he's in awe of God's size. Because he's standing there on a mountain that is consumed with fire and smoke and that just blows his mind, the immensity of God. Second, he is in awe of God's mercy. He has just seen Israel commit a horrible act of marital betrayal to God. And instead of God wiping them out, which he had every right to do, God gives them mercy. And not only that, get this picture. Moses is standing there in the presence of God holding the Ten Commandments. Remember a few couple weeks ago I showed you that there is no way any sober individual could look into the face of the Ten Commandments and think they kept even one of them. 
How would you like to be standing in the presence of God holding a list of all the ways that you come up short before God? He's overwhelmed with God's size. He's overwhelmed with God's mercy. And so God says to him, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Presence is the point of Christianity. A sense of awe, a tangible felt sense of his size and the largeness of his mercy and his love for you so that the Spirit of God, Romans 8, bears witness to your spirit and whispers in your soul, you are the child of God. If I could just speak prophetically for just a minute, this sense of awe is what is most, in my opinion, missing from American Christianity. Most Americans have a very organized, very publishable, very small, domesticated God, a chummy Jesus, buddy Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy. Now, I suppose we do that to make God seem more friendly and more seeker-sensitive, but it is the size and the majesty of God that makes the fact that he lives inside of us so special. This God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand, who is so pure and so holy that nobody can even look in his face and live. This God lives inside of me. His majesty over me makes his intimacy with me overwhelming to me. The greatest experience, the greatest quest of all of your life is to experience the presence of God and to stand in awe of God, to have God sweep you up into his spirit and open your eyes where you suddenly feel your smallness and his size, your unworthiness and his lavish grace and goodness toward you to hear him whisper in, my, in your soul, I know all that you have done. I have seen the depravity of your spirit, but you are my beloved child because I purchased you at the cross. I am a father to you and I love you more than you could possibly comprehend. That is the greatest experience of all of life. And let me just say this. When that happens, you quit asking stupid questions like, will God make me happy in life? Will religion bring balance to my life? That's kind of like a little kid saying, if a nuclear bomb goes off next to me, will I get hot? Yeah, yes, you will get hot. But really the experience is so much more than you getting hot. It, it's so overwhelming of an experience that it makes your personal body temperature a little irrelevant. Or like, you, you know, you, you got an Olympic athlete who trains for years for an Olympic competition and finally makes it to the Olympics. And in that moment of the Olympics, they run and they win the gold medal. And as they stand on that podium, as they hear the national, or national anthem being played, as they're standing there and the whole world's watching them, a little kid walks up to them and says, is this fun? They're like, yes, it's fun. But the experience is so much more than fun that you don't really describe it in terms of fun. It is something so overwhelming that makes fun irrelevant. Again, do you experience God's presence in your life? Does God the Holy Spirit move in your heart and soul as he as real and as intimate to you as if Jesus himself were sitting beside you? Does he comfort you and guide you and convict you? Do you know him? 
Not do you know about him, but do you know him and do you love him? So he's going to the second major thing I think you see in here. And that is passion. Passion. Notice verse 14. Worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. Is a jealous God. God is jealous for our affection so much that he says, my name is jealous. Sin is not so much breaking a law code as it is betraying a lover. Exodus 32, the incident with the golden calf that we studied last week showed you that. Sin is a spiritual adultery. We look for in false gods what we should be finding in the one true God. God is jealous to be our greatest joy and delight. The first and most important commandment is that we love passionately God with all our heart, soul, and mind. He wants us to crave knowing Him more than we crave anything else. He wants us to trust in and desire and seek after Him more than we seek after anything else. He wants our eyes to light up more when we talk about Him than when we talk about anything else. So here's my second question for you as we end this series. Do you love and delight in God more than everything else? Many of us, we define how we're doing spiritually by how little we're sinning or how busy we are for Jesus at the moment, but that's not the point. That's not the point. Let me give you three questions to ask yourself that I think would determine if and how much you love God. Here's your first one. Do you crave to spend time with him? Do you spend time with him as some kind of Christian chore? Or do you think, can I squeeze out more time with God? I mean, for those of us that do spend time with God every day, for most of us it's like, okay, i got to do this. Before I go to work today, i got to spend the time with God. And the whole time you're looking at your watch, trying to figure out when you've done enough so that you can get on with your day. As opposed to craving to be with him and saying, how could I squeeze out more time to be with God? I mean, imagine if you were dating somebody, you started dating somebody, and, and that's how you treated them. You know what I mean? You, you're like, huh, we've been together for an hour now, time for me to go home. It's 7.30. i got TV shows to watch and stuff to do with the house. Our relationship's not going anywhere because you're spending time with them as a chore and a duty and not something you crave and something you delight in. How could you possibly say that you love God when spending time with Him is so much of a duty to you and a chore. A few weeks ago, I shared with you the story of Brother Lawrence, the 16th century monk who wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And I don't think I shared this quote with you. If I did, then just ignore it and let me do it anyway. But Brother Lawrence made this statement. He said, I find myself attached to God with greater sweetness and delight than an infant at his mother's breast. Let me just stop here for a minute. I don't want to be crude at all, but if you have a young child, you've seen this in action. You know, you hold a baby at three or four months old, and they crave that mother's milk. In fact, it's almost a little embarrassing when I'm holding my three or four-month-old baby. When I get it anywhere down, you know, in that region, they're going, like, I've got the proper apparatus, and I'm like, this is not me. When you've seen this, because they crave it, they just, it's like a tractor beam. They want to find that mother's breast. He said, that's how I feel about God. 
crave and I search for him. Or his statement goes on, I have had at times such delicious thoughts on God that I am ashamed to mention them. We don't even have a category for that. I'll tell you this, this has been missing from my life. Even while I've been pastor here, I don't mean just like years ago when I was in college. Or, while I have been pastor, and God has really gone to work on this in me. Sometimes it's just to walk outside and marvel that the God who created the sun, the moon, and the stars loves and cherishes me even more than I cherish my own daughters. Do you crave to spend time with God? Here's your second question. Are you constantly joyful? Are you constantly joyful? This one might sting a little bit. If God is our delight, we will be constantly joyful. Because no matter what is going on in our lives, we have as a constant the approval of God, which never changes. That's why Paul says in the book of Philippians, rejoice always. And we read that and we think, how could he say that? Does he not know my pain? Uh, I think he might. Paul wrote that command from a prison where he had been beaten and was held unjustly. Scholars believe that Paul had a chronic illness of the eyes that was a great source of discomfort and pain to him and grossed everybody out. Most scholars believe that Paul had at one point been married. The reason for that is Paul was part of the Sanhedrin, and to be part of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. But Paul obviously is not married when he's writing the letters of the New Testament, which means that his wife either left him because of his Christianity or had died. He had been abandoned by some of his closest friends and betrayed by others. Some of his former friends had lied about him and ruined his reputation in the churches that he'd planted. So yes, Paul knows your pain. But Paul also had made God his joy, and God never changes. Paul had a joy that was better than anything else life could give or that death could take away. So Paul's joy was constant. He could rejoice always in all circumstances because those circumstances change. And though he was often in pain, God never changes. And God was his greatest possession and delight. If you are not constantly joyful, it is because your joy is based on something else besides God. Do I need to let that sink in for a minute? If you are not constantly joyful, then it is a red flag screaming at you, waving at you. Your joy is based on something besides God. Something else is your primary joy, and that's why your emotions go up and down all the time, and you're not constantly joyful because your primary source of joy is not found in God who never changes. It's found in some things that do change. I don't mean some fickle, superficial relationship. Paul was in pain. He knew what it meant to be sad. He's just saying that my ultimate joy is such that I can say rejoice always because I know that all the things that change in my life, God never changes. If you are not constantly joyful, then God is not your joy. I mean, it's airtight logic. Here's your third question. What are you most passionate about? What do your eyes light up when you talk about? Here's the thing. You are passionate about something. All of you. This is not just a personality thing. You look at me and you're like, you're passionate about everything. That's true. I mean, yes, I understand that our personalities might be different, but all of you are passionate about something. Something stirs your soul. You get most excited when you're talking about sports, 
or maybe a new boyfriend, your grades, your dreams, what you want to do. For some of you, it's a very superficial thing. You get most excited about a new outfit, a new car, a vacation, food. For others, it's something a little more noble, like a cause, politics, some social agenda. The point is, all of us are moved most by something God wants to be that thing. What does the trail of your money say that you are most passionate about? As I've explained to you, your money flows effortlessly to the things that your heart most loves. What does the trail of your money lead to? Listen, y'all, the point is not the money. I know you think it is, but it's really not. The point is what you love most. And the trail of your money just indicates what you love most. Most of us overspend on our kids, our clothes, eating out, or status symbols like cars and homes. Anything wrong with those things? No. Except when they indicate that we love those things more than we love God and his priorities. And so we skimp on our giving to God and lavish ourselves with money. Many of you give sufficiently and live abundantly. If God was your greatest delight and joy, you would give abundantly and live sufficiently. God's name is jealous. He wants to dominate our affections and our dreams. Listen, if you are simply interested in God as a fire escape out of hell or somebody to add balance to your life, God is not interested in that at all. I mean, just think about what the cross demonstrated about the relationship that he wanted with you he poured himself out and subjected himself to excruciating torture do you really feel like he did that so that you could give him half-hearted devotion where you avoid big sins and go to church on the weekends he did not go through the horrors of the cross so that you could add him to your life as a safe net Again, imagine if I, when I first met Veronica, actually this is true, when I first met Veronica, I was actually interested in another girl that I'd known before her, right? So imagine my first conversation with her goes like this, you know, I got this other girl that I'm kind of interested in, but I really am interested in you too, and so I'd like to actually pursue a relationship with you, but if it's okay, I'm going to keep this other relationship over here going on just in case I get bored with you, plus things don't work out with you and go back to her, plus I like variety, I'm not going to lie to you. So if we could just have you half the week and her half the week, or maybe you three-fourths of the week because I like you better, and then her a quarter of the week. You know, it's like that Bachelor show. You like that show, don't you? You know, I, I got several of these going. At the end, I'll give one of you a rose ceremony, and then, you know, you'll see if you win. When you come to God and you say, God, I want you as a part of my life, and I know i got to clean up my act a little bit. I know i got to give a little money. I know i got to obey most of the rules, go to church, but you don't make him your supreme passion. You don't yield to him unconditional, absolute obedience. That is exactly what you're doing to him. And he is no more interested in that than Veronica would have been interested in me, the player. Is that how we say that? I'm not cool, all right? Is that how the kids say that now? You get the point. The other thing I'll tell you is that, listen, halfway committed, listen, listen to this. I will tell you this, halfway committed, use God as a fire escape and a moral influence is a miserable way to live. The most miserable people in the world are half committed Christians 
who are just enough into God that they're miserable in sin. And just enough into sin that they're miserable in God. If you're going to be saved, go all the way with it. If not, just go full on in sin and enjoy it for 60 or 70 years. And then hell kind of sucks after that. But for 60 or 70 years, just do something. I mean, does this make sense? The most miserable people in the world are many of you who are just enough into God that you're miserable in sin and just enough into sin that you're miserable in God. Go one way or the other. It's like my, the old Chinese proverb my dad used to say. He who tried to walk down both sides of the street will split his pants. <laughs> Choose. You're killing. You say, here's your third element. Power. Verse 10. God said, Behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you whom you are shall see the work of the Lord in you. For it is an awesome thing. Guys, when God uses the word awesome, that's a time to pay attention. This is not a seventh grader. Awesome thing I will do with you. First, you see, they got a purpose. They were to be God's demonstration community. God's work was to be so powerfully demonstrated in them and through them to the people around them that the people around them would marvel. Verse 12, but take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You see, the second thing to realize here is that the greatest danger to that mission of God showing himself off through you would be compromise with the world. That's what covenant means, making a covenant with the things of the world. To be one of God's people is to have a mission. The church is God's demonstration community. Ephesians 3.10 says it was in the church and through the church that God chose to display the manifold riches and power of his grace. And it's not just for a select few super motivated varsity level Christians. This is for everybody. This is the whole reason the church was created. There's this new term now, if you're into like, you know, reading Christian stuff and Christian lingo, the new term is missional Christian. And what they mean are Christians who have discovered their mission. And I suppose that's fine, but that's redundant, actually. There's no such thing as a Christian without a mission. God saved us for a mission. That was the whole purpose in calling us out. In fact, I would say it like this. It's not that he has a mission for his people. He had a people for his mission. You can't be one of his people without being called into that mission. It's for you. God lives in you. You were to be a marvel to the outside world. I've pointed out to our church a number of times before, something I think is very significant. You go through the book of Acts and just go through and count up the number of miracles in there, and what you will find is all of them except for one or two or maybe three. Out of the 40 miracles in Acts, all of them but one or two happen outside the church. Through you in the community. 
The way I've said it to our churches, I got access to 140th of the power of God. You got 39 40ths of it. Being out in the community. You talk about most churches where they've seen the power of God and miracles, and they point to their capital campaign. I mean, praise God for the capital campaign, but you are supposed to see the work of God in the community in a way that makes people marvel. So that's my next question. Does your life make the unbelieving world marvel? Guys, our lives are so explainable, aren't they? I mean, I'll just bring this real close to home. I look at my own life. Let me just ask this. How many of you feel like if I lost my job here, be honest, if I lost my job here, or whatever reason, I would quit being a pastor, how many of you feel like I could sell insurance and do pretty well? Raise your hand. Be honest. Yeah. Right, because I'm a good salesperson. I like to talk. I can persuade people of things. So sometimes I look at what's going on in certain dimensions of our church and say, you know, that really doesn't point to anything about the power of God, certain parts of it, because a lot of it's explainable. We've got great music here on Sunday. You've got somebody that can hold people's attention. I don't want people coming to the church and talking about the skill of the musician or the skill of the pastor. You want them marveling at the power of God. There's a very disturbing scene in 1 Kings 18. That I'll tell you why it disturbs me. It's, 1 Kings 18 is the story where the prophets of Baal and Elijah, the prophet of God, square off on the top of Mount Carmel to see who the real God is. And so the prophets of Baal go first, and they build this altar, and they spend half a day dancing around this altar, cutting themselves, doing all kinds of stuff to try to get the power of God to fall. And at the end, they got a big, huge show that was really entertaining. No power of God. Then you got Elijah's turn, who gets down on his knees after covering his entire altar with water. There's no fanfare. There's no PowerPoint presentation. There's no glitz. He just gets down on his knees and says, all right, fire falls out of the sky. Not only burns up the altar, but burns up the ground around the altar, so there's a big, huge crater left. And I look at those two pictures and think, which one's a better picture of our church? People leave our church talking about the skill of the prophets as opposed to the inexplicable power of God that fell and consumed the place in such a way that you don't even notice the prophet. I mean, think about how ridiculous it would have been for somebody to have commented about Elijah. Oh, man, did you see the way that dude prayed? The way his arms went up? The expression on his face? You didn't think about any of that, did you? You only thought about the power of God that fell from heaven. Which one of those is a better picture of our church? How about you? Do you have answers to prayer and miracles that you can point to that are inexplicable apart from the power of God? If not, you are not living out the power and the purpose of God for your life. I don't mean that to be condemning. I actually think it's kind of exciting. That's God's intention for you. It's your birthright. He has chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, abundant fruit, mind-blowing fruit, and that that fruit should remain and resound to the glory of God. Ephesians 2.10, God has called us and set us on a path where he has preordained good works that we should go and walk in them. It is the normal for you to be supranormal.
How about this? Does the fruit of the Spirit in your life defy explanation? Do people marvel at the fruits of the Spirit in your life? Do people marvel, that was the word used in verse 10, at your kindness, your generosity? When is the last time somebody was amazed by your kindness, your generosity, or your self-control? Do you have more kindness than the Mormons that you know? The Muslims that you know? Now, what I'm not trying to launch you out on is, you know, to go do one of these things like on the office this week where you try to out-polite each other, okay? What I'm trying to get you to see is how far we are off from normal. We have the holy God living inside of us. Our lives were not supposed to be explainable. People were to be amazed and marvel at the work of God in us and through us. And you saw there, verse 12, that the greatest danger to that mission is compromised with the world. We absorb the values and the agendas of the world and we lose our power. There's a story that really puts this into color in the Old Testament. It's the story of Samson. Samson, the guy with the long hair that was super strong. Old Testament scholars say that Samson was a picture of all of Israel. Samson was a guy given great strength so that he could lead Israel, defend them from their enemies, and demonstrate the power of God. People marveled at the strength of Samson. However, instead of using his strength and blessing for God's purposes, what you see in Samson's life is that he used it all for himself. He rips open a lion with his bare hands because the lion ate a honeycomb that he wanted. That's pretty cool. Ain't got nothing to do with the purposes of God, but he got the power to do it. Then he uses his great strength to kill a bunch of Philistines that ticked him off because they gave his girlfriend to somebody else. Again, really cool. Nothing to do with the purposes of God. Many of you are anointed by God. You really are. God has given you favor and power and blessing and opportunity. And many of you have used it all for yourself. And maybe it is time that you considered what God is doing in the world. That there are still places in the world where Jesus' name is not yet known. Places where the gospel has not been heard and churches have not been established. And maybe God wants to use you as a part of the process of getting the gospel there. Maybe the reason that he made you good at business is not so you can make $200,000 a year for yourself so that you can be a part of what he is doing on earth. Don't make a covenant with the world. The other tragedy from Samson's life was that rather than making the people marvel at the power of God inside of him, Samson absorbed the values of the world and ultimately lost the power of God. Just like God promised here in Deuteronomy 34, Exodus 34. He was supposed to live differently from the world. He was supposed to be distinct. But throughout Samson's life, you find him absorbing the values of the nations around him. At the end of his life, he ends up living with a girl that he's not married to. Delilah. I mean, you know her, right? He is revengeful, he is selfish, he is materialistic, he lives immorally, just like the world. Rather than conquering the world for Jesus, he was conquered by the world as he absorbed their values. You've heard it said that Christians are to be in the world but not of it. Samson was of the world but not in it. I'd say the same is certainly true for many of us. St. Augustine said 1,600 years ago, 1,600 years ago in the city of God, the citizens of God's kingdom are to look different from the world primarily in how they treat money and power. 
He said this, he said, the world is promiscuous with its sex, but stingy with its money because it thinks that money is sacred. So Christians are the opposite. Christians are promiscuous with their money, but they're stingy, put quotes around that, with their sex because they think sex is sacred. He said the way to look different from the world and how they treat power. The world uses power for personal promotion and acquisition. Christians use their power, he said, to serve. They yield and leverage their power, not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of others. So that's my last question. Are you marvelously different from the world in your lifestyle and in your goals? read a story recently from a thing. I'll just actually read the story to you. It puts all this into, I think, a good picture here. Dave Phillips, years ago, Dave Phillips and his wife, Lynn, had a talk when they were in about their 30s about the callings they felt God was stirring in them. As they discussed what they were most passionate about, they agreed that bringing relief to suffering children and reaching the next generation with the gospel were at the top of their list. They thought of starting a relief agency, but Dave said, can't do that because that would mean I would have to talk in front of people. And by nature, Dave is a very quiet, behind-the-scenes kind of person. But after much prayer, Dave set aside his fears, and he and Lynn started the Children's Hunger Fund out of their garage. Six weeks after CHF was launched in January of 1992, Dave received a phone call from the director of a cancer treatment in Honduras asking if there was any way that he could obtain a certain drug for seven children who would die unless they got that drug. Dave wrote down the name of the drug and told the director he had no idea how to get this type of drug. Then they prayed together over the phone and asked God to provide. As Dave hung up the phone, before he even let go of the receiver, the phone rang again. It was a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey asking Dave if he could have any use for 48,000 vials of that exact drug. Not only did they offer him $8 million worth of this drug, they told him they would airlift it to any place in the world. They would later learn that this company was one of the only two that manufactured this particular drug in the United States. Within 48 hours, Dave had the drug sent to the treatment center in Honduras and to 20 other locations as well. It was then he believed firmly that God was at work, (laughs) validating his call to the ministry. Year after year, God continues to provide supernaturally. Today, they have distributed more than $950 million worth of food and other relief to more than 10 million kids in 70 countries and 32 states. Children's Hunger Fund has distributed more than 150 pounds of food and 110 million toys. Forbes magazine consistently rates CHF at the top of their list of America's most cost-effective charities. This is not supposed to be abnormal or the exception. Church, this is your birthright. The world was to marvel at your selflessness and the power of God in you and through you. This is yours if you'll take it. You call this radical. The Bible calls it normal. Now I want to commend you. Because in some ways, this is what we have been striving for as a church, and I think we have experienced some of it. You guys have been willing to do what few churches would do. You've been willing to move locations and sacrifice to do non-traditional things to reach people. You're incredibly generous. 
You just seem to brim with faith. Every time I stand up here and say something completely out of my mind, you're like, oh, sounds good, let's try it. And we've grown in seven years from a congregation of 350 to now somewhere around 4,000. But here's the question. We experience this as a church. Are you experiencing it in your own personal life? You know what really gets me fired up? The thought of 4,000 people in the community who have made room for God in their lives and see unmistakable marks of his presence on their campuses, in their workplaces, and in their homes. Veronica and I want our kids to see firsthand the power of God at work in our home. Do not settle to be an up-close observer of God's work. Experience it in you and through you. It's your birthright. It's what God gave. Here's how, I, here's how I want to end. All of our campuses. I want everybody, if you would, to stand back up. To end this series, I want to pray over you. I want to commission you to go and experience just this. So if you would, bow your heads. I would encourage some of you just to open your hands, lift your hands, and receive this commission that God has at all of our campuses. Father, I pray for every believer that you have purchased with your blood in our church. Father, I pray that the different spheres that you have put them into, they would experience your power and your marvelous work in and through them. Church, with your heads bowed, would you just think for a minute about what immediate sphere are you in that you need to see the power of God at work in you and through you? Let the Holy Spirit bring one to mind and just commit that to God and say, God, I receive your plan in this. Father, I cannot lay my hands on every person in this place or at our different campuses and it wouldn't matter if I could because it's not my commissioning but I know that this Jesus is what you purchased your church for to live in them to make them people passionate about you and to let your power just reign over them God I commission them in Jesus name to go into our community and to see your power in its marvelous demonstration in their lives in their homes and on their campuses launch dreams and ideas birth vision and power and faith in these moments God let us see the majority of the miracles not happen in the walls of this place but let us see them happen in our community I commit this to you because this is your church that you purchased in Jesus name we all together said, amen, amen. Put your hands together and receive what God, I think, wants to do. Stay, stay standing up at all of our different campuses. Our worship teams are going to come, and they're going to lead you in a time where you can just express and give yourself back to God in, in worship.